Welcome to the College Neuro Network, a podcast series part of Simply Neuroscience's The Synapse. My name is Sarah. And my name is Sasha, and we're your hosts for today. The College Neuro Network has discussions with undergraduate students studying neuroscience and neuroscience professors in order to gain insight into the neuroscience department and opportunities in the nation's top universities. Today's episode is unique in that we'll be covering information from two rather than one university. This installment focuses on both Yale and John Hopkins University, both known for their strengths in research opportunities, passionate and innovative student bodies, and their rank as among the top 10 universities by the U.S. News and World Report. Today, joining us is Dr. Dayo Lee, a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Neuroscience and Psychological and Brain Studies at Johns Hopkins University and Professor Adjunct of Neuroscience at Yale University. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your experiences at both Yale and Johns Hopkins. Well, thanks for having me. So our first question is if you can please briefly introduce yourself and kind of describe your current positions at both universities. Right, so um, I'm currently a, a professor in two different departments uh, at Johns Hopkins University, uh, Department of Neuroscience and Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. And I'm honored to actually uh, have this uh, position called a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor, which was uh, created by uh, relatively large donation by uh, Bloomberg uh, a few years ago. And it, I think we are up to about 50 uh, Bloomberg uh, distinguished professors at Johns Hopkins University that span actually all fields. And one of the requirements is that uh, each of these professors is supposed to have appointments in two different departments in two different schools. Uh, so they're supposed to, they're expected to uh, play a role in bridging different departments and different uh, disciplines. And so I, for me, this actually fits my research quite well because I study uh, neural mechanisms of decision-making uh, using diverse approaches. Some are borrowed from uh, psychology, some are borrowed from economics, uh, and of course, neuroscience is based upon any techniques in biology, but I also draw from uh, computer science, uh, such as AI. Um, so, uh, and Hopkins actually has a strong uh, traditions in all of these disciplines. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to, um, actually uh, come to Hopkins uh, about a year ago. Uh, before that, I, I, was at, I was at Yale uh, for 13 years um, in the Department of Neuroscience, uh, which was a part of the medical school. And I was, I was doing research there for a long time. That's, that's amazing. So our, our next question is, what sparked your initial interest in neuroscience? So uh, I think I was originally interested in, when I was, when I was a teenager, about your age, um, I was very interested in philosophy and psychology uh, because I think we, you know, as we sort of develop our self-awareness, uh, I think the first question that a lot of us ask is basically, who am I, <laughs> where we came from, uh, you know, what determines my preference and uh, what, what am I supposed to do? Uh, and that, you know, for some people that naturally leads to um, readings in uh, philosophy and psychology, because those are the two disciplines that are, that, are, that are trying to provide a lot of answers to these fundamental questions. But I was getting confused because it was, you know, the books were very difficult to understand. Uh, I, even if I, you know, because I was doing this um, in a self, mostly self-study. Uh, I was not taking courses in, you know, colleges or wasn't talking to philosophy, you know, philosophy professors or anything like that. And I wasn't, I wasn't sure as to whether, you know, I was understanding things correctly or not. But then when I went to college, when I actually started taking classes in psychology, uh, I came, became more familiar with the experimental methods. So if you want to have a more objective sort of, you know, shareable knowledge, then there is a 
alternative approach, which is actually to you know, try to do uh, experiments. Uh, and one of those experimental methods, obviously, is to try to understand how the brain works, because what we think of as a mental phenomena, including the questions about you know, self-identities and things like that, obviously, are functions of our brain. So that's how I got interested in neuroscience. Great. That's amazing to hear. Um, since both me and Sarah are high schoolers, it's always so fascinating to hear how different people get interested in neuroscience um, right. from like a very young age. Okay, so our next question for you is, can you talk a little bit about your day-to-day -day life as a professor and what your, like, some of your responsibilities look like right now? Right. So um, I think one of the really attractive things about Having a having a having a you know be, being a professor is, as as a profession is the fact that actually you you have a lot of ability to control your time um, because you're you know spending a lot of time doing research uh, on the topic um, that that you can actually select and um, and therefore you know you 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 have a lot of freedom in terms of designing creating your schedules and deciding what experiments you want to do what kind of people that you want to do. obviously that's the that's the area that I spend most of my time. Um, these days, I do that remotely because, um, you know, like many of us, so we're, we're, you know, we're still um, limited to um, to staying, you know, to staying home. You know, before before COVID, for example, you know, I, I would be in my office interacting with uh, other people in the lab, supervising their experiments and things like that. that that's the most important activity for me. Uh, when I was at Yale, uh, I didn't have, I had very relatively limited interaction with the undergraduate students because uh, medical school doesn't have a uh, significant body of undergrad sort of classes or, you know, they don't interact with the undergraduate students too much. Uh, so I was way more focusing on, on doing research. I would occasionally give guest lectures and courses that are taught in uh, Department of Psychology and so on, but I, I would mostly spend most time, you know, my, spend more, more, most of my time in, 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 in the medical school. Here, because my positions are in part in the, in the medical school, so at Hopkins, uh, neuroscience department is in the medical school, psychological and brain, science, uh, brain sciences in the, in the, in the uh, School of Arts and Sciences. So I'm actually uh, preparing a lecture on the evolution, evolution of the intelligence, which will be given to the undergrad students next year. So I'm quite excited about that. Wow, that sounds really exciting. Yeah, for sure. And so kind of our next question for you is like diving more into um, your experience as a professor. So we wanted to ask um, what drew you specifically to becoming a professor at Yale and then what kind of motivated you to also take this position at Johns Hopkins? Um, so that's a difficult question because um, getting a faculty position uh, in, in any university, but especially in research universities, it has become, I think it was always competitive, but I think the perception is that it has become hyper competitive uh, in the recent years um, because uh, the, the, the research activity has become very industrialized, right? So it tends, I think that there, there's a worry that we might be training too many students that want to become full-time researchers in universities. And of course, the number of positions in research universities is limited. Um, so I have very limited ability, just like many other people, most, almost everybody doesn't actually have the ability to choose one particular university that you'd like to go to. You know, I, I, I won't name any university, but if you wanted to go to University A, for example, yeah. um, in a particular state, um, the chance of that you know opportunity opening up is uh, practically zil. I don't I don't think you you should count on it. So what you do is that you sort of gradually develop your specific research interest. You know I, I think that I, I I strongly believe that you should do research that most excites you, and then um, look around the world and see actually whether that's a you know there's a recognition and consensus that that problem is 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 an important 
Uh, and of course, um, if you, you know, if you're truly uh, excited about what you're doing, there's a good chance that there are a lot of people that share that excitement. Um, and, you know, and also it's likely that that's an important problem because otherwise, why would you get excited in the first place? Uh, and therefore, if you then sort of make good progress and come up with some novel ideas um, that other people can recognize and opportunity starts, you know, opportunity starts opening up. Uh, and then, you know, once you get, sometimes you have one opportunity. So uh, my first faculty position, when I, when I got my first faculty position uh, at Wake Forest University many years ago, uh, I had only one offer. So I, didn't, I had no choice. That, that was the only, only opportunity available to me at the time. Uh, but then uh, once you sort of uh, have, your, have your position, then sometimes you could consider moving to another university when opportunity, um, when such opportunity become available. And I went to Yale because Yale, as you mentioned in the beginning, Yale's Yale's one of the one of the one of the, one of the universities in the U.S. that have uh, probably you know one of the strongest uh, emphasis in neuroscience research. There are many uh, wonderful colleagues that I that I could interact with and learn from, um, and also has a really good student body, uh, both at the undergraduate and graduate level. So those those are the those are the main considerations when you have multiple choices, when you're lucky enough to have actually multiple options, or when you have an opportunity to move. And it's it was it most it's the same exactly the same reason that I came to Hopkins. I don't want to say which university is better. I think both of those are wonderful. But the main main reason uh, that I actually could move was because of the um, the Bloomberg uh, Distinguished Professorship that was that was made available to me. So that that was um that was very exciting, and I was honored to have that opportunity. Great, yeah, that's a very incredible and very impressive journey to take. Um, and so kind of you already touched on this a little bit, how Yale is very strong in neuroscience research, as well as a very strong student body. We were wondering if you could elaborate on what you think personally makes Johns Hopkins Neuroscience Department and Yale's Neuroscience Department different from other top universities. So they're, they're both uh, really strong in that they you know, have a huge uh, program. So it covers all levels and all areas of neuroscience uh, very well. Uh, that's true for both Yale and Johns Hopkins. And I, 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 I'd like to focus on actually what was particularly attractive to me at Hopkins. Yeah, that's where I am. One thing that was kind of ex exciting and interesting to me was that when I, when I started uh, considering the possibility of moving to Hopkins. So I have um, three kind of, so official mentors, right? So I had a mentor who was a neuroscientist uh, when I was an undergrad student. Then I have a PhD advisor that I uh, did my dissertation with, and then uh, you may you, you guys may know this, but once you get your PhD, you can also you all, most people these days who want to stay in academia also do something called postdoctoral uh, research. Um, so you get a little more you know additional training, sometimes short, sometimes it could be as long as your PhD research. And it turns out that uh, both my PhD advisor and my postdoctoral mentor were uh, trained at Hopkins. So Hopkins has a very uh, strong uh, tradition in the specific area that I work on, which is uh, referred to as a systems in your science, uh, which means that you're trying to understand different systems of the brain uh, and their functions and structures, such as like visual system, motor system, um, or memory, rather than focusing on something very much more microscopic, like particular receptors or particular molecules or transmitters and things like that. And I was obviously more interested in the systems neuroscience because as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, I was drawn to the neuroscience because I was sort of interested in these big questions, big questions relative, relative you know, relatively speaking, big question for neuroscientists because, you know, neuroscience really spans everything from, you know, molecules to brain evolution. 
it covers very broad, you know, time scales and spatial scales. Uh, and I'm, 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 I'm a systems neuroscience and Hopkins is really, really strong in that area. Great, yeah. Um, just adding on to what you were saying about how interdisciplinary neuroscience is, um, kind of transitioning over to class structure. Um, how does Yale and Johns Hopkins balance um, how classes are run? Are they more lecture-based or discussion-based? And what is the balance like to address that interdisciplinary aspect of neuroscience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it, this, is a, this is a hard problem because I think, you know, I think different universities uh, handle this differently because it's still the case that, um, so for example, at Yale, they created a neuroscience major only a few years ago. Uh, whereas at Hopkins, neuroscience major is the, the, probably the largest or one of the largest majors uh, for undergrad students. Um, so does that mean that uh, undergrad students at Yale are not getting any training, we're not getting any training in neuroscience? No, because neuroscience consists of many different sub-disciplines, right? So you can um, study the brain by studying its anatomy, you can study physiology, you can study evolution, you can study molecular basis of signal transduction. There are many, many things you can do. Uh, and some people actually object uh, to uh, having neuroscience major uh, for undergraduate students because they think that it's, uh, it, uh, encourages undergraduate students to become uh, too myopic because they are, they're going to start focusing on one specific areas rather than getting broad trainings uh, even outside uh, neuroscience such as like physics and computer science and psychology. And obviously I didn't have any formal training in neuroscience as an undergraduate student. Um, so there is a, there's, there's a debate. So universities vary in, 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 and there's a spectrum of how much uh, explicit focus the schools have. On, on training undergraduate students um, as, as, as a neuroscientist group. And I think that yeah, you, you, should, you shouldn't be, if you're thinking about choosing you know, which university to go to, and if you had already decided or very, you know, already have a lot of interest in neuroscience, um, I don't think that it's too critical for you to go to a school that has a huge neuroscience department for undergraduate students. Because I think what's more important is because you're at the end of your four years uh, of undergraduate education, you will not become a fully licensed neuroscientist, right? There's just too much stuff that you have to learn. Uh, and therefore, I think it's probably more important to uh, go to a program where you could actually get a solid training and education in the, in, the, in the disciplines that are more specifically related to the kind of neuroscience research you want to do. So if you want to be, you know, somebody who sort of, you know, uh, can go back and forth freely between AI research in neuroscience, then you might want to go to a school that has a, both a strong tradition in computer science and neuroscience, for example. Or if you want to become someone who's more interested in, you know, molecular science or, you know, neuroscience that deals with specific disease, then maybe going to a place where there's a good, you know, medical school and a good biology department might be uh, useful. So I think, I, I think it all depends on, on, on the kind of neuroscience uh, that you're interested in. So both me and Sarah are planning to study neuroscience. Um, in some way, shape, or form when we go to college. So it's very interesting to hear that there are a lot of nuances between neuroscience departments at different universities. It's very important to look into what you are really interested in and see um, which one's the best fit for you. One, one more thing that I'd like to add is that regardless of what kind of neuroscience you want to do, I think that um, having a strong quantitative skills is extremely important these days. This is a, is a gradual change that's been going on for several decades that I've been in the field that uh, the technology is uh, advancing at an, at an amazing rate. 
And that's making it easier and easier for researchers to get huge amount of data quickly. Uh, and the person who actually has a good quantitative, you know, computational skills who can process those data and then, you know, extract information that's useful to test different theories about how the brain works, I think actually will have a huge advantage. They do already. So this is, this is something to keep in mind. Got it. And just to add on to what you were saying, would you say that's more of like computational neuroscience and statistics classes? Is that what you're talking about? that that's that's relevant too um but then you you know if you're interested in those kinds of neuroscience you're gonna get a lot of training you know during your uh, undergraduate and graduate training uh, but in order to be able to study those materials um you definitely need a solid background in um in math right this is what i was talking about earlier that some 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 professors actually think that it's it's more important for undergrad students to spend more time in studying math and physics and get more foundational sort of training before getting into, uh, for example, specific algorithms that might be applied to, you know, on some areas of the, in, the, in the brain, for example, because you, your interest might change. You, may, you might be interested in vision right now, but you might become more interested in the motor control later, which is what happened to me. I studied vision when I was a, uh, when I was a graduate student, but now I studied decision making. So it helps because how the visual cortex works Obviously, we'll give you some insights about how other parts of the brain work, um, work as well. But what's more important is that in both of those areas, you're going to use a lot of math to understand um, how things work at a, at a more abstract level. Got it. Great. That's very interesting to hear. I've never um, heard that perspective before, so that's very insightful. Um, and then so our next question for you is kind of at, um, the same discussion with classes. So you're wondering if you could talk about what your favorite class was to teach so far. Well, I, as, I, as I said, I, I didn't teach a, teach a lot of courses uh, when I was at Yale. But before I went to Yale, I was at the University of Rochester. So I was at another, another stop um, between Wake Forest and uh, Yale. And at that time, I was, I was, in, the, I was in the college. I was in the, I was in the College of uh, Arts and Sciences. And um, I was teaching upper level undergraduate classes on something called sensory and motor systems. Uh, and that was, of course, the only course that I was teaching to undergrads and therefore that was my favorite. Uh, and uh, I didn't, I gave sort of, you know, uh, occasional lectures to undergrads when I was at Yale. Um, so I, I, I don't think I could point to a particular class that I was teaching. Um, and I like to make the course that I'm preparing to teach next year at Hopkins my favorite. Uh, because even though it's going to focus on the brain evolution, um, it's, it's actually, I'd like to cover these neighboring disciplines that I mentioned. In other words, I'd like to sort of dis discuss with, this, with the students as to what's the difference between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. You know, is there, is there something that uh, can inform uh, future AI uh, from the knowledge that we're developing in humans? Uh, and are we unique? And you know, what uh, do other animals have intelligence? How do we evaluate them? Is the intelligence unique to animals? Do plants have any intelligence? Uh, how how can we recognize alien intelligence? And, and these are these are the questions that that have always fascinated uh, me. And I, I'd like to sort of do that uh, with the undergraduate students. So we wanted to also talk a little bit about your book birth of intelligence from rna to artificial intelligence which is targeted at science-oriented high school and college students and explores questions such as does a high level of biological intelligence require complex brain and is ai fundamentally different from human intelligence right. Right. so first can you um please kind of briefly explain the general topics that your book covers right 
Well, thanks for uh, introducing my book. Um, yeah. uh, so this book was, was, was very ambitious. And in fact, that's why I decided to write a book rather than writing as a, as a uh, article, because I, I knew from the very beginning that, you know, since it's, I'm, I'm, I'm one person who's write, trying to write a book on so many different things that I wouldn't be able to cover it at, at, at the level of vigor that's expected for peer reviewed scientific uh, publications, for example. But the book really wanted to link everything that I find, you know, find interesting in, 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 our, in our universe from how the life originated and what's the relationship between uh, life and intelligence. Uh, and does AI have real intelligence? How is it going to be different, uh, you know, this different, different from human intelligence? Um, so it actually introduces very diverse perspectives about how we can go about understanding human intelligence uh, and brains. So it, it has um, chapters on AI, something called principal agent relationship, which deals with you know, how you can efficiently set up division of labors uh, between different entities and you know, how the principal who's actually driving the contract with, the, with another agent in order to create a uh, productive sort of division of, uh, division of labor system, uh, how, how the, that principal could actually um, instruct the, uh, the agent so that the division remains uh, productive. So this, the reason why this is an important issue is because as life form gets more and more complicated, uh, division of labors occurs repeatedly. So I'm arguing in the book that, uh, for example, you can consider brain evolution as a way for uh, genes to create its agents so that it can solve the problems that life form faces more effectively. Um, and the same thing is true uh, for AI and humans as well. So we're creating AIs so that they can deal with the problems that humans face more effectively. So it's very similar to why the brains evolved in the first place. So I'm trying to draw parallels between these different sort of changes that take place in very different levels, but I think, I think there is, there's a lot of, lot of uh, similarities between them. Right, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what kind of inspired or motivated you to write this book? One of, the, one of the questions that was fascinating to me for a long time is how we evaluate animal intelligence. And you guys probably have, uh, have this experience already. A lot of people argue about whether their dog is smarter or their cat's smarter, right? So cat people think that cats are smarter, dog people think that dogs are smarter. How do we know which animal is um, more intelligent? Um, and that was always a sort of fascinating question. I, I never had a satisfactory answer to that question. Uh, but I, I, I always thought that, you know, there's got to be some better way of, of understanding the, the fundamental nature of uh, intelligence. So I've been reading a lot of sort of papers and books about intelligence, and they all say intelligence is the ability to solve complex problems. Uh, and some of the people will say that intelligence is the ability to solve complex problems in a variety of environments, because solving a complex problem is in one specific context, the AlphaGo, who beats you know the uh, the Go champions and the you know the Go World champions? I don't think it's highly intelligent because it can do only one thing, and that's play the game of Go very well. But it obviously has no ability to solve other problems, and we don't consider those kinds of machines as highly intelligent. And then here's the main insight that I wanted to share with other people, and that is that it's it, that's still not good enough. In other words, you know, intelligence defined as an ability to solve problems under many circumstances. Is still is not enough to define intelligence because you have to ask the question as to for what? For what? Why are you solving these problems? Because that's going to determine as to whether you're going to 
you know, you're going to accept the solution as a solution uh, because the solution to one person uh, of a, you know, to a particular problem may not be a solution to another. And I, and I realized that um, if you look at the, all the problems that either man-made or, you know, humans are man-made machines or humans are trying to solve, those are problems that life faces. Um, you know, you'd like to find a good food, you'd like to find a good mate, you'd like to clean your environment. All of these are problems that are being solved for life. Uh, and that's when I realized that, you know, life and intelligence are like fundamentally linked together. And that was, that was the main thing that I wanted to convey in my course. Yeah, it's very interesting. And so our final question for you is, we were wondering if you had any final advice for any high school students listening um, who really want to study neuroscience or apply to Johns Hopkins or Yale University. Oh, um, I think that there are many exciting neuroscience programs and departments uh, in the country. So, uh, and then as I, as I mentioned earlier, it really depends upon what kind of neuroscience you want to do. I have I have many regrets. Uh, there are many things that I wish that I had done differently, which is also very interesting. So, function of our brain. This is one of the, another another question that I cover in my book. Um, there are many things that I wish that I had uh, done differently earlier when I was a high school student or, um, or when I was an undergrad student or graduate student. Uh, and at that time, it felt like I made a really really serious mistake that uh, I'm going to be really really handicapped because I did something wrong. Uh, and there are many cases where that, you know, thing that you thought you felt that you're wasting time on uh, can actually become your strength. So uh, one example is that I studied decision making uh, and I happened to have studied economics as an undergraduate student. So when I was in graduate student, you know, I never wrote any, I never had written any uh, laboratory reports when I was an undergrad student. Uh, and you know, I had to write, write my. I had to learn how to write my first uh, lab report. You know, after I, after after going to the graduate school, which uh, felt like a huge handicap for me. Um, but then many years later, when I started uh, studying uh, decision making and it's you know how the brain sort of makes decisions, um, the the fact that I had spent several years uh, in, in in the college and took many courses in economics actually became a huge advantage because most people in neuroscience, never heard of, or they really don't know what utility function is. They're not familiar with the mathematical models of decision-making and things like that. So this was a very unusual and in a way lucky sort of turn of events for me. Uh, and I think everybody's, you know, I think Forrest Gump said that, you know, life is like a box of chocolate. Uh, I think you'll see that many times. So whenever, as long as you're, you have a passion in what you're doing, um, you shouldn't really not shouldn't really worry too much about as to whether this is going to help me, you know, ten years later with my career or something like that. I think you should, you know, this is you. You guys have a protected time. Students are protected, um, so you that you should utilize uh, your time to try to explore your interests and discover something that's really really important. Great. Yes, and uh, both as me and Sarah are high school students, we um, often like find ourselves like doing things specifically for college. But it's really important to just pursue things that you're interested in. Um, so I definitely agree with that. Um, and that wraps up our questions for you. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today for the College Neuro Network. Your responses were so insightful, and they'll definitely help any high school students listening who are researching colleges right now and are interested in majoring or minoring in neuroscience. Thank you so much. It was so thank great you. to be able to interview you. Thank you. Good luck. Yes, yeah, thank, thank you so you. much. Bye. Bye. Bye.